What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. And today, you're going to watch FBI agent John Grusing talk about Gabby Petito, murderers, serial killers, him interviewing these insane people, bank robberies, all kinds of stuff that the FBI deals with. But mainly, we talk about his experience on the new hit TV show called Wild Crimes on Hulu. The documentary, there's a four-part series. I think it's going to be an ongoing show, but whoa, it is crazy. It's about the federal agents that work inside the national parks, which I didn't even know existed. So this one is a really, really good episode. It's a doozy, and Johnny was awesome, and he let me know a lot of secrets about the feds. So uh, buckle up. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content, which is about every Friday. Thanks for checking this one out, and enjoy this episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast with FBI agent Johnny Grusing. I'll see you next time. Peace out. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have Johnny Grusing, who is a former FBI agent, actually just retired end of July. So congratulations on retirement. But um, Johnny, you want to tell me a little bit and uh, my listeners and watchers about who you are and a little bit about your career. Okay. Uh, yeah, I grew up in West Texas, although I was born in Colorado. Uh, went to Texas Tech University, met an FBI agent when I was uh, pursuing my master's degree there. Never even thought about doing something like that till I talked to the guy. And he was fascinating. He said, uh, two things about the FBI. You won't make millions of dollars, but you'll love what you do. And every day is different. And I stowed away his card in my top drawer, went to work in Dallas for a few years. That's not the career that I wanted was business after meeting uh, the agent. His name's Greg. Call Greg back and say, how do I get in? And it took me a year to get in, went through Quantico, and then they assigned me to Denver. So uh, works terrorism, for the FBI my first year and a half. And then uh, they transferred me to the violent crime squad. And I found out I loved working that stuff. So uh, I worked violent crime uh, early on and worked fugitives, bank robbers, uh, missing kids, not many homicides, like something happened on federal land, we would get involved a little bit. But Mainly it was just the violent crime happening in Denver and we would work closely with our local police departments, those sorts of things. Uh, in 2006, I got my first serial killer case. Had no clue how to handle a serial killer or what to do. So I reached out to our profilers. Someone told me they could help and formed a close working relationship with me. Uh, they were extremely helpful in teaching me how to wrap my arms around a case like that. And I maintained a close relationship with that case. Uh, his name's Scott Kimball. Uh, was an informant of ours who went around killing people while another FBI agent was paying him. The FBI had no clue what he was doing and he was off the charts, manipulative and devious and intelligent. So Scott, uh, I became, well, I wouldn't say friends with him, but he did have my picture up on his TV inside of his jail cell for quite a while that he told me. So, uh, yeah, we I spent uh, from 2007 to about 2009 uh, talking with him and attorneys about how to recover these victims. Sorry about that. You're good. I talked with him from 2007 to 2009 with all these attorneys present about how to recover victims in the desert. But that training period, Corey, for me, that was, that was an immersion in uh, dealing with uh, a very intelligent and manipulative guy that I've never seen e anybody even close to him. So it was better than any of the training I got. And I got good training with the FBI, but, but the on-the-job, hands-on training of dealing with someone like Scott Kimball then prepared me to work weird case after weird case for the next, what, 12 years of my FBI career. God, man, that's, that's fascinating. I'm like, I'm also, although I, just side note, I looked in, I was going to do a career in law enforcement. I always wanted to be a homicide detective because I was just fascinated by it. And then I, started doing criminal justice classes, doing, you know, uh, police academy. I was like, oh, I gotta be a cop first. And I don't really want to run a beat and all that stuff. And 
you know, I'm glad where I went, but I've always been fascinated with that stuff. I did not know until obviously you told me before we started that you worked um, a serial killer, like an actual, and I just looked him up. He, whoa, whoa. And he was tied with the FBI. So you said an FBI agent was paying him? Yeah, and he was an informant. So Kimball was parading as a knight in shining armor and trying to help this other agent figure out who out there might be killed from inside the federal prison. Uh, once Kimball was released from prison, he, he led around some of my coworkers and I was watching it happen. And, and we all knew something was wrong with the guy. We could tell he was real smart, but just quirky. Mm -hmm. And none of us could put our finger on why he was weird to us. But it wasn't until an uh, agent moved away and uh, two dads came to my boss, dads of missing girls, and said, we think your informant killed our daughters. Wow. And I was the only one sitting in the squad area. So you want to know not what to do is don't be sitting in the squad area by yourself, you know, because you never know what will come down the pike. Right. But uh, then that's how I got assigned the case. All I had then was a, an informant file. And... Then I started looking into his stuff and yeah, people would just disappear. And he left breadcrumbs, even in the FBI files of saying like, yeah, the last time I saw Leanne, she was in Utah. So you look at that and then you have context of dads coming in saying, yeah, our daughters, Casey and Jennifer were last with Kimball. You can see something's bad really quickly. Right. I, I teamed up with uh, especially one detective, his name's Gary Thatcher, he was with Lafayette who was working on two of these missing people already. And we dove in and it was uh, something. It was like the rabbit hole for sure. Right, right. I can only imagine a serial killer, like backtracking all that. And then things start happening and you're like, like those aha moments. I'm sure you had a bunch of those. Um, damn, that's fascinating. The, um, okay, so FBI, 24 years, right? Yeah, it's almost 25. They rounded up for me. It was so close. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, how I found you, just so everyone knows, is I was watching um, a documentary on Hulu about crimes that take place on uh, in uh, national parks. It's called Wild Crimes. It's on Hulu. And I didn't know this, that the, the national parks have like their own kind of, I'm not going to say FBI, but they're almost like federal agents um, that patrol the parks. There's only, I think, like 33 of them or something like that. Uh, and there's like 85 million acres is like what the show says, which is fascinating. And there was a case on there that I think Beth, uh, what's her name? Beth shot shot. Yeah. She was amazing. She was one of those get her done type gals where she just got her hands dirty for sure. And there's a, um, an accidental, you know, push or fall type case, um, with a guy whose wife died. Anyway, you guys can go watch the show, but they brought you in and, I guess, because your experience with missing persons and your background with the FBI, how did that happen that they brought you into that case? Yeah, so uh, Tony Henthorne died in the National Park in September 2012. And uh, there was an agent from our Fort Collins office that was assigned the case. Uh, I was in the midst of still working some of the Kimball case. I had worked, been assigned some other missing person hard to solve homicide cases where I would team up with local police departments and we would just work them together, pull in the profilers and see how far we could take them. But uh, that agent from Fort Collins, I met him in the hall one day in, in our safe streets building. And he says, Hey, I think I've got a, a serial killer. I said, tell me about it. He says, yeah, this, uh, his name's Harold Henthorne and he took his wife up to Rocky mountain national park and he disappears every Thursday. And we can't figure out what he's doing. And he's been doing it for years. And he goes, I think he's going around killing people. I said, well, okay, what makes you think that? He said, well, his first wife died in really suspicious circumstances. And this guy's just super odd. So we talked about back and forth, you know, talk, you know, reach out to me if you, I can help, et cetera. And the, the case went on for a little while. And uh, I know Beth was working it. Uh, she didn't have an FBI agent that was, totally assigned to it because that's what those cases require just like Beth was working her butt off but she didn't have a lot of help because they don't have a lot of resources you know right. with NPS and then our agents are assigned other cases so finally the U.S. attorney uh, I'd known them for quite a while they requested that I come in and help because 
they couldn't move the ball forward from where it was. So I met with the U.S. attorney, met with Beth, and they said, you've got to walk up and see this cliff that she fell off of. So that's the first thing we did. Yeah, the you guys walked up there. I remember watching the show. They were basically like worried that because you didn't say they said that you didn't say anything up there. Like you weren't like, oh, and then when you got in the car, they were like, you're you were quoted as saying like this guy killed his wife or this guy pushed his wife or something like that. Right. Yeah, there's no reason for them to be up there, Corey. And <laughs> right. Uh, I'm normally pretty quiet and I find that it's better to uh, be quiet when you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, right. You know, I didn't have the context of the case that they did. So I was just processing all that stuff. But yeah, you think about the whys, like you look at the, the three things, your, your subject, Harold, your victim, his wife, and then the location, we draw a triangle and that's, you know, investigations 101 and why that location, why is, why is Tony there and why is Harold there? Mm -hmm. And you can see why, why Harold might be there, you know, maybe, but on his anniversary evening, you don't right. normally climb a mountain in the evening and they've both been in Colorado for quite a while. Tony with the knee surgeries, you know, we're talking about all that stuff as we go up, but even more than that was, uh, and this is what Kimball, my serial killer had taught me is you want to, if somebody has table legs of stability, you want to take all those away mm -hmm. so that it's only you and your victim and there's no other witnesses and your victim has no one to cry out to. And not only at the at the scene, but even before then, and that's what Harold had done. He had isolated Tony from her family, moved her from Mississippi to Colorado. It had been a, a slow isolation from friends, even. He controlled her communications. They were telling me about that stuff. But then especially when he went off trail and then off trail again, there's no reason to do that. Right. You know, and uh, the cliff itself was just terrifying, you know, to walk up to that thing and try to look over. And I'm not afraid of heights but there's no reason for people in their 50s to be <laughs> looking over something that means certain death and to be playing within a few inches of it right yeah no when they, when they would put the camera and they would go up to the and then they showed the diagram of how far off the beaten path and there was no like like hey go this way if you want to see a great you know view or whatever it was kind of like do not go this way almost so i thought that was crazy but the coolest part was when like when you were talking about him, him going up to um, was it Estes Park, like him going down from wherever he was living all the way up, like the hour or two hour drive, it was up there like once a week or once a, and he started paying his cell phone. That way you could kind of like, you basically were like building a case of like, okay, he was like going up there, probably surveying the area. I would assume seeing which trail he wanted to go in and finding that area where he would, you know, where that picture where they're holding that branch, like right over that, right over the cliff. Is that kind of what you did? Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I'm finding the devils in the details with a lot of these cases. I even found that with my first bank robbery case back in 98 to where there's a couple of U-Haul trucks that were seen at a, a first uh, commercial federal bank in Aurora, but it was just a real small communication. Somebody just threw it into the file and sometimes those get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. And so I got assigned two closed bank robbery cases to start my my violent crime career closed meaning there's no good subject why don't you just look them over wow. and i pull out one of them and I, I find this one communication it's only like two sentences but it says hey we found these four u-hauls were rented because one of the uh, bank tellers had seen a u-haul leaving around the time of the bank robbery and so i go to the place they give me the list of the four i run the four one of them has a convicted felon on there and end up getting an arrest warrant for this kid named Jason mm -hmm. and then get his girlfriend to flip and whatever else. But it, it just, that's where I say the devil's in the detail sometimes. And that's kind of what had happened with this is the cell phone records were there in the file, uh, but they weren't easy to look at back then in 2012. They're a lot easier today with everything being digital, and whatever. So I had to look, get all these reams of paper and do these, you know, three piles and try to work through stuff to figure out what is this, lap long mean and Harold had done some uh, a lot of planning and preparation and he was smart enough though to turn his phone off once he figured out where he wanted to kill Tony that was on like trip three mm -hmm. I believe from like trips three to eight we didn't get any cell service up there because 
once he started his road up from Highlands Ranch, he'd turn his phone off. Right. And so all I was looking for then were gaps. I'd look for, okay, he's probably heading north. And then you would see him maybe coming down a different route that would, you know, logically you would assume that he's been in the park. But it, it was it, it was interesting to me to watch Harold as I was testifying. Because while I was up there testifying, I was thinking he was just going to be challenging me with, you don't know for sure I was there, shaking his head no, like I'd seen him do mm-hmm. uh, to some other witnesses. But he's nodding his head <laughs> while I'm saying, you know, like trip four. Like, okay, looks like the phone was heading north, and then I have a four-hour gap. So I'm assuming he was up there at the park. And I'm looking at Harold at the defense table. He's nodding his head. Not like, yeah, so yeah, you're right. Yeah, like, yeah, you got that, Grusing. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, my Thank God. You for that. Yeah, and so he didn't have his attorney argue, you know, much on that behalf either. But uh, it, it did make sense. And we had, you know, the, the jurors obviously thought it did as well. But we present the facts we can. But that's why I have nine planning trips, but I think only three of them were complete. Right. I was just filling in dots and then letting the jurors say, yeah, that looks like the other three. And just like he had no reason at Cliff, he had no other reason right. to be heading north right. on a day when he's telling Tony he's building churches you know, right. and getting a babysitter for their daughter. Yeah, I thought that was very odd when he was decided to go on this ridiculous hike on, you know, because I, I looked up the actual hike and we, me and my fiance moved out here to Colorado because we liked outdoors, we liked to hike. And even that was like, that's a, it was a pretty legit like hike. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could hurt yourself there like you said there was no reason for him to be up there and she was kind of like upset almost like this is what we're doing for our anniversary like going on this hike that we could have done anytime we wanted to why aren't we doing something different but man that was that case was fascinating and obviously his ex-wife the one that died before played a huge part in your guys's kind of like i think getting a conviction is what at least that's what the documentary kind of portrayed a little bit but i don't know so it did. Yeah, I was able to dig into that one quite a bit too. And the, the Good Samaritans that stopped for her name was Lynn. Uh, when Harold finally figured out he would flag someone down because two had tried to stop and he had waved them on, most mm-hmm. likely Lynn was underneath the car, suffocating with the weight of the car on her back. God. Uh, with that uh, front right disc brake laying right across, uh, you know, her right between her scapula. Mm-hmm. And Yet when they came and started doing CPR, these ones that pulled the car up off of her, it's Patricia Montoya. She was an excellent witness, by the way. And her dreams were scary, man. I mean, she told me dreams she had and <laughs> made chills run down my spine right. after dealing with a situation like that. But her, uh, her husband and his brother started reviving Lynn and she started breathing. And she said, Harold's look instead of relief was horror. And she said she could still see it. And that's why she went to the funeral or the memorial. That's why she called the police, all that stuff. Wow. But that gave us, Corey, context to why Harold waited 45 minutes to dial 911 for Tony because he had to let her bleed out completely. Right. Uh, He wasn't going to take a chance like what happened with Lynn, that law enforcement or some good Samaritan might come and she even has the chance to recover. Right. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, the um, what was it? The uh, the other thing he hadn't have a job since like ninety two. When they said that, I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" So he's basically using these women's life insurance policies as a paycheck. I couldn't believe that. Like, that takes a lot of work to kind of portray this kind of like, "Oh, I'm a business owner. I'm doing this and that," and then not have a paycheck for that long. I was like, I couldn't believe that when they said that. That was yeah. fascinating. Well, uh, one of one of Harold's close friends uh, told us, he says, Harold is not capable of murder. There's no way. I prayed with that man in small groups for 25 years. He knew Harold during Len's marriage. He saw Harold grieve, which, by the way, your serial killers, your Harold's, uh, others that I've dealt with, their expression of grief should not be anybody's sign that they can't be responsible Hmm. because it is an outpouring like something I couldn't even do. You know, if something happened to my wife, I mean, I would feel that same grief, but it looks so real. Nobody questions it. Mm -hmm. And so even people that were super close to Harold said, no way he faked that with Len's death or with Tony's. But so 
just something, a little extra tidbit for you. There. Yeah, no, that's, that with, sense. Uh, yeah, he said, the friend said, Harold's not capable of murder unless something is going to threaten his public persona, is the way that he put it. So Harold had created an image for himself that even though it wasn't true, it was of a successful businessman, a strong follower of God, you know, this leader in the community who's building churches. And so when Lynn gets sick, she gets sick at work. She's not only going to have to be, have expensive surgery, but his sole money that comes in that is his persona is going to be threatened. He takes out an insurance policy on Lynn, kills her. And then same thing happens with Tony. We, we all wonder, would the marriage have gone on if Tony hadn't diverted the oil check and wanted to become, you know, a, a, a partner in her eye creek surgeons and stuff like that, you know, that those things that threatens Harold persona, she didn't know that she was approaching death, right, you know, right, right. by doing those things, because who would think that? Yeah, you don't, especially the person that you're married to, you know, that's fascinating, man. That's crazy. I can't even, uh, that show just blew my mind. I was like, I, I just couldn't believe it. That just the fact that the, the national park services has people like this, uh, cause you don't think about that stuff when people either go missing or when they die, you're like, Oh, the, the feds will take care of it, which I don't know if they do for the most part, but I just thought it was so cool that they have their own organization that kind of handles stuff like this. Um, so you did a lot of bank robbers or, or bank robberies, investigated those and stuff like that. Um, the BAU, right. The behavioral analysis unit. That's it. <laughs> so my, all my episodes of criminal minds have paid off. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding um could you tell me a little bit about like kind of like what goes into the profiling like i talked um a little bit about this with kathleen puckett the she kind of pro helped profile the unabomber and stuff like that they really had a hard time because he was brilliant um but anyway she kind of went into a little bit about profiling but I'm, I'm so fascinated with with that world and stuff like that how do you profile someone that like in your case, the the Kimball guy, the serial killer, the the Adam Lanzas, the shooter, the school shooters. How do you do all this stuff so you can do the kind of work you're doing now to start up be on the offense and get some prevention going on with this kind of stuff? So Corey, first of all, you have to assure me serial killers aren't listening to this, so they would know all our <laughs> secrets, right? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, it actually doesn't matter if if they are or not, because again, this goes back to. What, what I learned with working with them closely while I'm in, in front of one for so many years, and I, I worked with Scott Kimball uh, for from 2006 to when I retired in 2021, 15 years with serial killer. Yeah, because he would come back and say, now I want to confess to, uh, my, I might be good for this homicide. Hey, Grusing, wow. come talk to me. And the best way I can, there's two visual pictures for you. One is Lucy with the football, just have Charlie Brown run at it, and you know what's going to happen. She's going to pull it away, but you got to go take a run at the ball, right? Mm, yeah. And the other is a cat with a ball of yarn that's just going to, the yarn's going to be there, and the cat's just going to bat it around. The Kimball, though, knew that I was hooked because I'm, I communicate with the dads of these daughters that are still missing, so I'm bound to go talk to him anytime he calls. Right. And because of that, I would lean heavily on a couple of guys at the profiling unit uh, while I would go talk with him. I even brought them to talk to him in 2011. That was fascinating. It was 14, minute, 14 hours in one day. All we took were restroom breaks. Nobody ate or drank because Kimball was just so excited to be in front of profilers. Wow. And all he talked about were his fantasies. It was very disturbing. But then we even went through to about six hours the next day. He just wore us out. Um, but I tell you all that, I, I like to give stories instead of just explaining how yes. they are. Uh, profilers are normally agents. We'll even, we do uh, people from other agencies as well now, like ATF or DEA or Washington Metro cops who were homicide detectives forever. And our one unit that I work with a lot, it's called BAU4, and that's Crimes Against Adults. So they specialize, uh, it's a, a unit close to Quantico, and all they do is hear about these super weird homicides daily. And they're from all over the nation. So, you know, picture the best think tank that you can get. And they don't go out in jets and fly around because they don't have time to because they're juggling 
all these different things. And they're trying to just like eyedropper bits of advice for us. Uh, we'll present some, I have gone out there with, we've actually presented a case or two of different homicides, the one timers that are super weird, flown with uh, Denver police department out there. And we presented this super weird homicide and they all let us talk to them, but what they are, and they, they modeled this for me. They're very good listeners. Uh, they round table stuff, but they digest everything. I mean, if we send them a 2000 page report, they read every bit. And so they know the case better than the case agent or the detective or whatever else. I wish I could say there's magic. I was hoping for magic working with the profilers, but it's hard work. And it's, and it's not putting your ego out there. You know, it's, it's then they'll, so once they've digested it all, they bounce it off each other and then they'll give us what's called a consult. And in the consult, they'll say, hey, you know, we, we saw that, you know, Kimball put this in the case file and, you know, this is with Leanne and I don't know that her ex-boyfriend's been interviewed. We see him in there, but what's the status of ex-boyfriend? It's like, yeah, I didn't know how to approach him. And so then they'll say, well, we see this and this. So you might think about approaching him like that. So they're not doing the interviews. They're equipping us, whether it's agents, detectives, you know, sergeants, lieutenants, whoever's in front of the person. This is what you might think of. And it's just tools. I mean, we use them a lot of the time because, you know, they're, they, like I said, they've done almost more homework than we have. Right. But uh, it's a very excellent way to check your, the way you're approaching a case and then get outside thinking. That's a, that's fascinating. So it's not like you said, you made the joke of like flying a jets. Cause that's what you see on criminal minds. They get on this jet and they go. So those criminal uh, are those uh, analysts, they're basically staying where they're at and they're digging deep and they're getting a lot of Intel and learning all these things, these quirky things about the case. And then you as the active agent that's out in the, you know, working this stuff, you go to them and get information from them. And then you go apply that is basically what you're saying. That's correct. And so they would train us. We would go back for like an immersion course, whether it's one week, I got to spend a couple of weeks there at a time just because I kept getting these weird cases and right. uh, get to sit through a lot of those consults. And even I got to pitch in a little bit, but uh, I enjoyed more the hands-on piece of being in Colorado. And it was a, a value to these uh, small Sheriff's offices. One of your questions might be, Corey, why does the FBI get involved? Like it, it was obvious right. with uh, with Henthorn because that happened on national forest land and it's National Park Service and it's that's a federal crime. Mm -hmm. So that's almost like you know our backyard or whatever else that that there's not even police that respond. There it was Best Shot and and Park Service and then FBI. We come in, but like on these other ones, like say Kelsey Barrett, who you know was down there in Woodland Park and disappeared. Why do we get involved in that? And it's because we can come alongside a small department like Woodland Park and offer them resources that reach outside of the state of Colorado, especially when they're trying to get to something quickly. Right. So that's what I ended up was able to do for quite a while is something weird happens. So then they would ask for profiling help and then I would contact the profilers, but then they would actually need a boots on the ground physical person to come help with interviews or with the, the Kelsey Barrett case, it was to go interview this nurse named Crystal who came in town for some reason when she disappeared. And all of a sudden there's no crime scene. And hmm. I got to travel to Idaho and interview Crystal. This was a couple of years ago, but uh, that's, that's what we'll, that's how the FBI gets involved. And it's more as an assist agency uh, for these smaller departments that just don't have the manpower. Right. These things. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense too. Like they just don't have like, also maybe not the proper training too of like how to properly interrogate someone and stuff like that. And that kind of leads me to my next question of, I've always thought about this, you know, I watched the show Mindhunter, like obsessed with that show. Um, how they, they, they coined the term serial killer. Anyway. Um, I always think like, damn, like these, these people are interviewing some extremely dangerous people. How like, you know, you fly to Idaho, I'm assuming that that person was involved with that, that woman's miss, you know, disappearance. How do you feel when you go in and you're like, okay, I'm about to talk to someone that potentially did something absolutely terrible to someone? Like, how do you set that up in your mind? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it, it's so it's so different, Corey, than when law enforcement is contacting someone they don't know. 
we as, uh -huh. as the FBI are contacting someone we do know. So we're able to look into their past, we're able to, you know, kind of piece together some things and uh, whether it's uh, the woman in Idaho that held her name is Crystal or, or even if it's a Kimball going into prison, because that's where I get to interview Scott, you're going into prison, you, you, I'm in a little white room with him, I have one other person with me. Yeah, I might have a lot to lose, but with the, with the Kimballs, with the Henthorns and, and these others, they know that we are the ones that might be able to get them out mm -hmm. if they tell us the right story. Right. So as soon as, and, and my job was to be a good listener, you know, and if you're dealing with a narcissist, someone like Henthorn, I don't know if they, they labeled him as that or not in the show. I haven't watched it yet. They did, but yeah. That, you look at his job. We go back to him and his public persona. It's all about that. You know, I went for a, a trip with my wife in South Carolina for our anniversary and I saw some peacocks there and I'm like, that's Harold. Yeah. With all the, when all the feathers come up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look at me. And, and so if, if, a, if a narcissist and someone who's in a world of hurt sees law enforcement and believes they can manipulate me or whoever's in front of them, then they'll talk all day long. I had a serial rapist, uh, Mark O'Leary. They made a, a show called Unbelievable about him on Netflix because he was actually so good at what he did that they end up, law enforcement in Washington ended up charging one of his victims for false reporting uh, when he had uh, sexually assaulted her. What? Through his entire night. Yeah. But uh, the reason I bring up O'Leary is Kimball had taught me this. Kimball's a narcissist too. He has to be the smartest person in the room. And the thing about him is he probably is. Mm -hmm. He's quite a bit right. smarter than I am. But as long as I would come in humbly to him and say, hey, Scott, you know, and he would just blast me out of the room for the right. first 10 minutes about Grusing, you promised me this. Grusing, you're a liar. Grusing, this, this, this. You, you said you do this. I'm not talking to you until this. And the person beside me, whether it's, you know, the warden or they're going, how can you let this guy treat you like this? Right. Like, well, just wait. And I don't do this in front of Scott, but you know, this would be like in a, in a break or something. I was like, it lasts 10 minutes. This, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. You better do what I'm telling you to. And then he talks to me for three hours. And it was the same thing with O'Leary. O'Leary was very nervous to talk to me. He's very sexually deviant. That's mm -hmm. even more than murder to talk about your sexual deviancy it's scary for right. mark but then once he knew that i wasn't going to judge him once i told him how intelligent he was which he's very intelligent too he was military using all his training on how to stalk women and i said the profilers want to learn from you i've been talking to them about you mark and all that stuff is true Corey. i'm not feeding them a lie right and when they see that i really want to learn from them and that i'm not a threat to them and that they're smarter than me i I'm very good. I don't think I have to play dumb. I just think I'm very good at being dumb right. <laughs> because they believe it every single time, but it's true. But you're, we are all threatened by someone who either, you know, talks down to us or thinks that they're smarter than us and whatever else. And besides Kimball, I haven't really met an evil person in 23 years of doing violent crime. Right. Even O'Leary wasn't evil because he he's so abhor he was he was horrified at who he had become. Right, right. And he could say, I'm so embarrassed of this, and I'm glad I'm in prison because I won't be doing this stuff anymore. And I mean, he had a soul. Right, <laughs> right. Scott did, but he only Harold had a little bit of Scott in that they will put on the face. Remember Men in Black, you know, where the uh, oh yeah. Edgar, the bug comes down and his suit doesn't fit quite right. You yeah. know, right? And his like, wife says, Edgar, your face is hanging off your bones. You yeah. Know? Sugar water. <laughs> right. Sugar water. You're yeah. exactly right. Yeah. But that's, that's what Kimball and even Harold, you know, when he was pretending to be the successful businessman, he's putting on that mask. Mm -hmm. But even the people close to him, they, they can't see it. Right. So you have to feed a lot of this to them, whether you're, you know, doing it on purpose or not to kind of, yeah build them up and make them feel comfortable with you almost becoming like a friend. I see that a lot in interviews and even on show that's, that's, you know, like narratives that are rewritten from stuff like Mindhunter, like, you know, some of these, I know it's like a little bit, it's kind of a little bit blown out of proportion, but I mean, there's some truth in there where they're like, 
becoming these serial killers friends, not because they want to, but because they have to, to kind of earn that respect and trust. So like you're saying, they shit on you for 10 minutes. And the next thing you know, three hours, they're singing like a bird telling you everything you want to hear, which is crazy. Yeah. With, with Kimball though, it was 90, 95% fantasy lies, but he would sprinkle in truth. Just like I said, it was breadcrumbs in our FBI file. He's not going to tell you. I mean, he told me this the first time I met him up there in Montana when he was in Mm -hmm. prison. He goes, "Uh, Agent Grusing, you can't convince a liar, a man who's lied his whole life, to tell the truth in in this single moment. He goes, it just doesn't happen. And so that goes, the liar part goes along with the narcissist part. If if you have killed someone or, or they're the bank robbers or whatever else, you have to be a liar. Right. Right. Because you can't be telling your significant others what you're up to. So Harold had become very accomplished at at lying, looking straight in his church group, his wife, even his daughter, you know, like why she needs a babysitter and lying. Right. Because he's having to cover up that he's overinsured Tony, that he's now planning on doing something awful to her. But look at that. He had, what, 22 years of practice lying about going to work every day. Yeah, that was fascinating. That's a, that's almost harder than just going and getting a job and working. Honestly, <laughs> when they said that, I'm like, I could not do that. Like pretend to go work. And he's like, I like Panera bread for like 20 years, whatever it was like, that's, that's too much. That's not, it's really not that serious, but I mean, these people, something, you know, something wrong with them, I guess. Um, two, well, two more things. Um, okay. First of all, it's unbelievable, right? On Netflix. I'm totally going to watch that now. Right. Yeah, it's a well done show. It's shown more through the eyes of the victims, I believe, in, in Washington. Well, that. But, it, but he, it, some of the, I've worked with two female detectives here, mm-hmm. and they had Tony Collette, I think, plays one of them. And I don't remember who the other one was, but. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'll check that one out. I love when they do stuff like that. I love when they do. Did you see the um, on Showtime active shooter? I didn't. Especially with your work with kind of like understanding that stuff. Whoa. That was um, a fascinating docu-series. They stopped it because it actually aired on like the night of the Vegas shooting, Oof. which it was like bad, not a good look. Um, that was like told through the eyes of paramedics, cops, victims, uh, doctors at like local hospitals, like when they talked about the Aurora one, the movie mm-hmm. theater. But the one thing that got me was like the, the Columbine. Like I, they literally, they started the, that episode out with, um, the guy who wrote a book about Columbine, and he's like, that 99% of the population thinks Columbine was two young kids who hated everybody that weren't popular, that were part of the trench coat mafia, like all this stuff. And I'm like, that's exactly who did these things. And he's like, no, they weren't. They, first of all, they weren't in the trench coat mafia. Uh, that was like a kind of like a different little group that they weren't even a part of. And then there was also like, uh, they, they actually weren't like, picked on in the way that everyone thought like the media portrayed them to be. And I was fascinated. Like they laid out their plan of like blowing up the cars outside and how it just kind of was botched. And I know you told me off, was it I don't know, off camera when we started, but you actually uh, know one of the, sh- the killer's moms and they, and how they did that in the show was basically, I think it was Eric Harris was kind of the one that really wanted to shoot up the school. And the other kid like kind of just wanted to kill himself and Eric Harris kind of convinced him, Hey, you can kill yourself and do this as well. Um, from like the writings and the stuff that, 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 that I forget his name would document, but uh, you know, do you have any insight on kind of like that? Since you kind of do a lot of, like we talked earlier, like prevention of, of those things and, and, and understanding why these school shootings are happening and stuff like that. If, unless if I'm wrong, is that kind of like the direction that you're going? You're right on Corey. So the other kid's name was Dylan Klebold. Dylan, that's right. And uh, yeah, after the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting, uh, the Behavior Analysis Unit and Secret Service uh, teamed up together and would give all of us, being one of us in each you know FBI region, training on the pathway to violence. And if you want to Google the pathway to violence, I mean, we all go through that. Uh, I. I give a, a briefing every morning. I go around to the different schools here in Douglas County, which is where I work now, uh, trying to do safety and security for them. But uh, saying that for, for 25 years, when I commuted to the FBI office, uh, if I would be driving and someone would start 
flashing their lights at me or giving me, you know, hand signals you don't like to see when you're driving and honking at you. That's called a grievance. And then, then I have an idea. I move from the grievance to an idea of what I want to do to that person. And sometimes it's unhealthy. Like I'm in law enforcement. I still had unhealthy ideas of what should happen to someone who's all on my bumper. But then instead of moving down a pathway to violence, which is planning, preparation, breach, and attack, uh, then you go back and you circle, circle back around to the grievance. Okay, someone's honking at me. The guy's an idiot. He's not worth me doing anything to get in trouble for. I don't want to lose my freedom, my job, my family. And we just let the guy go. So we all have that. And, and to say someone like Henthorne or Kimball or O'Leary or whatever else, they're the only ones that go down a pathway to violence is craziness. And we're talking about Cleveland and Harris. For their pathway to violence, it was a long time. And for some time for these mass attacks, these kids, adults, whatever, they get that grievance, they have that idea and they go to planning and they will leak out to their friends, especially kids, you know, when you're up to 18. So your parents don't see it, you know, and just like, you know, Kimball's wife didn't see it. Harold's wife, Tony, she's a doctor. She didn't see what he was planning. They don't disclose that stuff to people close to them, but they do leak out to their friends. And so that's why the FBI and you know our sister agencies are trying to teach prevention to get out in front and to get these kids talking to adults to get uh, whether it's uh, you know some sort of safe to tell mechanism to where they can report this behavior and, and educating society on this pathway, and especially after COVID with the mass stuff and whatever else. We adults need to know our pathway to violence as well, you know, because it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's prevalent. But if, if we can even recognize in ourselves when that idea goes to the planning stage, it's extremely dangerous. And, and these kids, Klebold and uh, Harris, uh, they started closing in to where, and that's what uh, Dylan's mom, Sue, she, she and I have become friends said that when that closing in happens, they can even look happy because they've determined what's going to happen. And all that that problem, that boiled up anger and whatever whatever their grievance is, it's unique to all of us. They've figured out how to deal with it. But it's in that idea phase when we're all saying, what do I do with this sort of thing that's really ticking me off right now? Right. That we as society have a chance to maybe intervene. And what I even found working the bank robberies for uh, the FBI for a long time for serial killers, those were stopped by somebody in the bank just being friendly. A guy's walking in with his ball cap and sunglasses. Like they don't know he's going to rob the bank. Could be you or me, mm-hmm. but they just greet him. They said, Hey, how's your day going? You know, how can I help you? Those bank robbers, when they would confess to me later, they're like, turn around and they're out of there. Wow. It's that human contact. It's, I see you. Right, you know, and that's what we want for these these kids and whatever else to uh, get out in front of this violence. Right, yeah, it makes a lot of sense because I I noticed that one thing that I noticed of all the all the research I've done on mass shooters um, is like anytime that well at least mainly from that documentary on Showtime the active shooter was because they talked about how Columbine basically changed the game for them and like now instead of like you know stopping and helping every single victim i mean the the one in san bernardino they literally or the one at berkeley college they literally the cops were like i literally had to walk over people because i had to go and eliminate this threat and then by the time i get back to that person they're gone they're dead so um, one thing i noticed and they noticed too is anytime that these these active shooters typically the, the young students were met with anyone, whether it was another law enforcement officer or any sign of any kind of combat, they kind of just stopped doing what they were doing. And they've become like almost scared at that point. Like, uh, so, so do you see that a lot too, where like they're met with, you know, to your point of like the bank robber, if I'm nice to that person, they're going to kind of second guess them doing what they're about to do to me and everybody around them. Is that what you see also in those active shooter situations? Yeah, and I've never been in the middle of one. Uh, I, as an investigator, were second responders or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, once police have come in and done, you know, what you're talking about, right. then we're the ones sitting down and doing the interviews. So, right. yeah, that's kind of like w- what you would normally see. I mean, because like the fact that they even give up and they don't, mm-hmm. you know, kill themselves or have a shootout with police is kind of like a sign to me, like they. 
kind of maybe didn't even want to do all of that and go that far. They just wanted to do something. I don't know. Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. Oh, that, that's good. There, there's, there's one that I'm working on that I'd love to comment on, but you're uh, the shooter. I watched his interview and with the profilers, it, it's still an active case, but mm-hmm. you, what you just said is exactly what he did. He gave up and, you know, like, like we were talking about his, he had, he had the grievance, he had the idea, but he said it was way too horrific for what he had imagined. Right. So, and it goes into, you know, our, that, that's a whole different follow wax is our fantasies and whatever mm-hmm. else. And it's, uh, it's something that O'Leary, the, the rapist talked about that a lot. And even Kimball, I saw that on his computer of the, the fantasy that he's trying to work out you know, and that he's frustrated with that, that it's not like how he hoped and Kimball's homicidal, whereas O'Leary was more like trying to make it work with fear, right? Fear became his fantasy instead right. of, you know, a normal encounter with a, a female. God, man. No, it's, it's uh, that, that drive goes awry in a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. Damn. That's fucking crazy. Sorry. Um, all right. L- one last thing I'll let you get out of here. Um, I know you don't didn't work it, but uh, what's going on right now with this Gabby Petito case? Um, FBI is involved. We got Dog the Bounty Hunter involved. We got John Walsh involved. Great stuff. But um, they found her body. They, you know, the timeline of how um, her boyfriend slash fiance went back to Florida, and now it's like the parents, like everyone says that they helped him and stuff like that. What is kind of like whether it's your gut or your professional kind of like you know, 10,000 foot view of this case. Um, Cause the FBI is involved in that and they're trying to, they're trying to catch him. Um, they don't think he's dead from all the news reports that I've seen. They think, I think now they think that he's left the country um, with help is the last report that I saw, but God knows if that's even true. Um, what do you think? What is your kind of insight on, on that particular case? If you have any. Well, uh, Actually, just today, Mark Redwine was sentenced out in Durango for killing his son, Dylan. That happened in November 2012. Uh, Dylan was 13. He went out on a court-mandated visit to see his dad, Mark, and then Dylan just disappeared. Wow. Uh, I went down there and interviewed Mark for a couple of days. This is all open record. Uh, you know, and We had the trial this summer, and Mark just got sentenced, from what I heard, to 48 years. The reason why I tell you that, uh, Corey, is that's that's called emotional or affective violence. And that is much different than when the, the mass attack that we talked about, mm-hmm. where they, they do this long preparation cycle where it's a grievance, and then they're going to have this idea and plan. And and like, I, I know nothing about the case. You're right. So I, I mean, I've seen it in TV, but but I know with, uh, with Mark and Dylan and, and even, you know, the case I talked about with the nurse from Idaho and Kelsey Barrett, when it's interpersonal like that, mm-hmm. uh, you can have a lot of dysfunction going and love a person dearly. And then there's a match that goes on the gunpowder. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what was going on in between uh, Gabby and her boyfriend, but it, like just thinking back to Mark was looking forward to seeing Dylan. And Dylan, though, was not looking forward to seeing dad. And a lot of stuff got thrown around in the first hour. And then a 13-year-old is missing and dead and found in the mountains, you know, a uh, month. It took us a long, lost law enforcement hikers years to find him. That's why it took so long to go to trial. But I go back to say, Mark had no intention of killing Dylan. He was actually looking forward to spending time with him. Wow. You know, so we can't see and I can't see inside of what that relationship looked like. Uh, I don't know if it's like a Harold Henthorne thing where he did nine planning trips, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and right. he's actually going to take her out here. And this is something that he planned to do. But right. based on the limited stuff I've seen, it's probably not. It might be that the relationship had a lot of dysfunction, that he loved her and but there's a lot of, let's just call it again, gunpowder built up in the room and all it takes is a match. Right. And, and a lot of times it doesn't even have to be uh, killing. It can be some event that you can't take back. Right. And if, when it's in between two people, only those people know what that looks like. It can be a, somebody had warned, she had warned him, you ever do this again, you're done. And so he does the whatever is done thing and that, that it might not even be killing her. Right. 
but once you cross a certain line within a relationship and there's no coming back and then you're looking at prison anyway, you know? Right. So that's a very vague answer for, I don't know what the heck happened, <laughs> but, but I've seen when it's, when two people care about each other and one disappears because Harold loved Tony in his own way. I even, I heard somebody say, no, Harold's incapable of love. No, I listened to Harold's phone calls for an entire year. He loved Tony. Mm -hmm. It's, dysfunctional i mean right, we're right. all dysfunctional in a certain way we have a selfish part of our love harold's was very dysfunctional but he loved her and yet he killed her right so, so and, but it, i think it's easier yeah it's easier for people to say though there's no way he could love because then you're not capable of that right 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 <laughs> right yeah that's easy now it's so as far as that goes like do you think um like if if and when they catch him and they find out like, you know, cause the days it was like four days before his parents reported him missing and it kind of throws some like, Oh, Hey, are you helping them kind of get out of here or whatever? Will they face any kind of like, if they find out that they were like harboring him or helping him or doing anything, do you think that they'll kind of like go down with that too? It depends on how much, I mean, if they were truly obstructing an investigation, that's one thing, but it, yeah, it's hard to say because, again, right. that's up to the district attorney. They, the local police will do their sheriff's office, FBI, whatever, will do their investigation. And then if they see that the aid was substantial, you know, absolutely. I mean, right. plus, you know, this is on national, be, a case like this being on national news does make stuff like that happen. It's not that media drives an investigation, but the public outcry would be great if, you know, they were helping and you're expending all these resources uh, right. to try to find out what happened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm like, I love and hate about the media. It's like, oh, I hate you because you always feed me this crap and make me go down these <laughs> rabbit holes. But at the same time, you really shed a lot of light on stuff that needs to be talked about or dealt with. So, right. Man. Hey, Johnny, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know you're, you're a busy man. You got to get out of here. So um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. Awesome, man. That's another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast, and we'll see you next time.